2: Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and welcome to The Daily Beast, The New Abnormal. I'm a left-wing pundit and an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer. Our world has been turned upside down. On The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and figure out how to get ourselves out of it.
3: And I'm producer Jesse Kennan. I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. Today, we have such an awesome episode. First, we have Jeff Stein, who writes for The Washington Post about economics, and he's going to talk to us about the state of play of what's going on in those hallowed halls of Congress. But first... I'm very excited to welcome my favorite cable news host, the host of the Mehdi Hassan Show on MSNBC and Peacock, Mehdi Hassan.
2: Welcome back to the new abnormal, Mehdi.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Molly.
2: Very exciting. I want to talk to you about something we actually talked about on your show last Mm. night, but is so amazingly preposterous and absurd that I feel like there's still more to say about it.
4: Yes, I think I know where you're going.
2: (laughs) Critical race theory. Wow.
4: Wow, indeed. The three words that send a chill down Republican spines, or so we're told. (laughs) Three words that are having people get arrested, Molly. This week we saw... (laughs) We saw white conservative Republicans in Loudoun County, Virginia, get dragged out of a hall by police, get arrested. You know, back in the day, people were arrested protesting the Vietnam War, protesting the Iraq War, protesting climate change. But no, these people are willing to get arrested to protest something that isn't being taught to their kids and that they couldn't define if their lives depended on
2: it. It reminds me of the Common Core... And the tea party, right? Yeah. Things that nobody sort of understand people don't on the right anyway don't totally understand, but no know- that is very dangerous and they must stop it at all costs.
4: I mean, the one that gets me, and I know Wajahat Ali has written this for the Daily Beast, but it's something I raised with Kimberly Crenshaw who's one of the co-founders of Critical Race Theory. What reminds me the current moral panic over CRT is the Republican moral panic over Sharia law. Remember that in the wake of (laughs) 9-11? It was was Sharia law, (laughs) creeping Sharia, they called it. Hashtag creeping Sharia. And it was the same playbooks, the bejesus out of white folks about brown or black folks, use a term they have no idea what it is, they then pretend they know what it is, (laughs) you know, they could never have defined Sharia if their life depended on it, and then you actually, and this is where it becomes unfunny and actually very serious, they actually pass laws to actually crack down on it. So multiple states passed laws banning Sharia. These were (laughs) copy-and-paste laws, just like the critical race theory laws are copy-and-paste, same wordings used for back campuses and schools. In Oklahoma, I believe they amended the state constitution to say Sharia could never be used in Oklahoma law. But by my count, there are fewer Muslims in Oklahoma than people who say they are Jedi Knights, right? But but that's what the census showed. But that's what Republicans did with Sharia. That was brown people. That was people who looked like, Me and now it's critical race, too. Let's be clear it's the race part of it that they have an issue with, right? And that is what they are so scared of right now, and why they're trying to scare everyone with discussions about CRT because it's black people talking about slavery, talking about things we don't want to talk about. They can't define it. I mean, this is, we all know this. Right, uh, exactly. The Alabama state legislature who sponsored the law there was asked by a local columnist to define it. He couldn't define it. He was asked which books he had read on critical race theory. He hadn't read it.
2: Yes, I'm surprised. It's, it's quite shocking. 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 Yes, shocking. He hasn't read any books on it. It's interesting to me as the granddaughter of a communist who was blacklisted and jailed, it feels very familiar, right? The idea is that there are ideas that are so dangerous that if they're taught— They're going to create this group of people who know things.
4: And of course, that's been part of the Republican playbook, as I mentioned on my show on Peacock the other night, that this has been around for decades, right? This idea that if we send our young people to these liberal colleges, they will find out things we don't want them to find out. They will be taught things about history we don't want them to know. Um, And there's always been that scare on the right. Uh, There's always been that fear. This is all about fear. And it's interesting you say familiar. I I interviewed Kimberly Crenshaw on my show, who is one of the co-founders of Critical Race Theory, someone who actually knows what it is. Uh, And she made the point, that, you know, it would be laughable, this entire hysteria, if it weren't so dangerous and so familiar, she said to me. She said it's a mob mentality, and the analogy she used, trying to Willie Hortonize racial justice, going back to the 1980s and Bush Senior, supposedly the good Bush, who, of course, ran the racist (laughs) ads (laughs) about (laughs) Willie Horton. And this is what they've always (laughs) done. Pick an issue about black or brown people, Muslims or black people, and go after it. And that's what they're doing. And you're seeing the reporting now from Politico that the Trump team think this is going to win them the midterms. And you know what? I don't think they're necessarily wrong. They're actually good at weaponizing this stuff.
2: Right. Well, that's the thing that's sort of amazing is that this works for them because they're so good at messaging. And Democrats don't even – I mean, I think the thing that is the most problematic in my mind is that a lot of these Democrats, they don't want to lower themselves to responding to this. But when they don't respond, they lose.
4: That is, it's always that classic problem. It's the problem with Trump. Like, do you amplify the message by rebutting it? Or do you actually leave space for people to spread this crap everywhere? I mean, they have their own media, you know, silo, environment, echo chamber, propaganda arm, whatever you want to call it. You look at the study done by Media Matters, 1,300 references to critical race theory in the last two and a half months alone. Like, you cannot beat that kind of message discipline that they have on the right. There is no equivalent of it on the left among liberals in in kind of mainstream media. There's nothing close to this. Look at the way they did uh, Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss. It was two weeks of nonstop back back-to-back coverage on Fox, hour after hour, to the point where if you poll people, everyone had heard the story, and they are masters of that. Now, look, silver lining, it does backfire on them sometimes. They did the caravan in the same way in 2018. They pushed the caravan every day, every hour, and they didn't win the midterms. They lost pretty badly. And then they stopped talking about the caravan the day after the midterms. Weird that. It's weird how the caravan just disappeared (laughs) Ah, from the headlines.
2: I just want to get back to this for a second because Vice President Harris is now going to the border, Uh, right? Which conservatives consider to be a huge win. Go to the border. Go to the border, right. Now, and I do think it is, you know, they won with this conservative talking point because now, you know, the idea is that something is going to happen at the border. And we all know that conservatives use the border for photo ops.
4: Photo ops nowadays with them in camo on gunboats, yes. like they have mm-hmm. ratcheted right. it up even beyond what they used to do in the past. There was a time when no respectable Republican would have done that, and now that's right. where that's where we are now. Uh, that's the era we live in. Look, when it comes to immigration, the Democrats have been their own worst enemies for so many yeah. years. They've allowed the framing of it to be a security issue, to be about control, about who you let in. Like even even this whole debate when Biden came to office in the first few months, where they made a big thing out of uh, you know child detention and kids. Coming across unaccompanied, even there, you know, there were very few Democrats who were willing to come out and say, you know what, people seeking asylum is not illegal, and by the way, this whole crisis began on Donald Trump's watch. Like, and also, what's your alternative? Like, there's no one ever asks Republicans. I never hear Republicans being asked. Okay. So how are people supposed to get asylum? Oh, wait, you don't support any asylum. Fine, say that then, own it. You know, children, you know, you don't want children in detention centres while we find their family. Remember the big difference between kids in detention now and then, and I'm not a fan of kids in detention under any party, But the difference is Democrats are trying to get them to their families or to foster care. Republicans were using child detention as a deterrent specifically. That's how it was advertised. Pulling children from the, from literally breastfeeding babies from the breasts of their mothers. So the answer is, do you want to keep them in detention forever? Oh no, you want to kick them out to Mexico. This is the argument I had with Dan Crenshaw on my show. Like, okay, (laughs) what happens in Mexico? You just dump them there and you never talk about it again? Like out of, that's the Republican policy on immigration, right? Out of sight, out of mind. As long as we don't see them them on our camo wearing visits to the border, there is no problem.
2: Yeah. I mean, the border has been amazing. And it is, I feel like the thing Democrats should be messaging is that our population is not growing in the way it needs to for our economy to boom. So,
4: good luck with that, Molly. Good (laughs) good luck getting anyone to message that. I mean, Democrats (laughs) Mm -hmm. should be messaging, could be the name of a podcast where we talk for hours and hours and hours and hours about all the missed opportunities, own goals, um, self-contradictions that we get from this Democratic Party. I mean, look look at the S1 debacle last week. Where was Joe Biden's messaging on that? Where was the president? Where was the leadership? We heard so much about how it was such an important bill. Right, And it just crumbled on the first day.
2: Well, and why use the House bill at all? Why not craft your own? I mean, you're the Senate. You can do whatever you want.
4: I mean, to be honest, that wouldn't have made a difference because Joe Manchin said. I mean, Joe Joe Manchin hadn't voted for it. That's a different argument. Joe Manchin comes on board and says, "You know what? I have my issues with this House bill, with S one, with HR one, but I've been told that we're going to, when we do the debate, my suggestions are going to be included." Republicans, of course, shot down the debate. That's the whole point of the filibuster. And I think that is where you have to say, "Well, hold on, what next?" It's just like we just moved on quietly from (laughs) S one being defeated. This is why I don't (laughs) get about Democrats. On the one hand, apparently democracy is at stake, which I do believe it is. But I hear Democrats telling me it's at stake. And then the next minute, oh, but wait a minute, we can't do anything about it. We've got to go. you got Joe Biden, you know, we just we're speaking now, what, moments after Joe Biden's coming out of the White House with his pals in the Senate announcing an infrastructure bill. And all I can think about is, yay, we're going to lose our democracy, but at least the bridges won't fall down. Well, some <laughs> of the
2: bridges. I mean, some it's not that big of an infrastructure no, exactly. bill. It's
4: paltry to quote Senator Richard Blumenthal.
2: That's right. I mean, and he's hardly some far leftist Richard Blumenthal. Bill, I just want to get back to the panic in the schools for a minute, critical race theory. So Desantis's bill, which we talked about yesterday, is amazingly vague, but it does threaten funding.
4: It does, and this is what the, I mean, there's so many ironies here. This is the irony of a party that claims to hate state power, using state power in this <laughs> right. way, that claims to hate using the, you know, the power of the purse for these things, using it in this way. There's a party that claims to be the party of free speech trying to restrict free speech on campus in our schools. There's the party that claims to be all about the right to offend and against political correctness and against snowflakes saying oh no i can't hear anything about the history of slavery in this country that will make us all turn on each other so it's like the hypocrisy level after level of hypocrisy and this they're, they're so unself aware sometimes i think maybe they're just all cynical liars and sometimes i just think no maybe maybe they really are just that's unself aware you had laura ingram on fox news the other night saying if critical race theory is going to be accepted by general milley and the military we should not fund the military and it's yeah. kind of like really you're for defund the military I'm with you Laura Ingram.
3: <laughs> wow,
4: like you don't have any you don't see any irony in calling for the defunding of the military having spent the last 18 months on another panic about defunding the police?
2: That Milly interview was fascinating to have Matt Gates who is still under FBI investigation sort of pushing General Milly and General Milly saying like, you know, I've actually read things and I mean that was so interesting and strange. Do you think and I can't believe I was like taking General Milley's side. I was like, maybe the army is good.
4: I know. I was like, Milley should have resigned over Lafayette Square. And yesterday I was like, ah, okay forget about it. That was that was worth it, just that intervention. I mean, he made such obvious points. Again, Molly, we live in such a low bar America, right? The
2: bar is so low. <laughs> I think that might be redundant, but yes.
4: Continue. But when General Milley comes out and says, I read Marx and Mao Zedong, doesn't make me a comment, it's like, uh, stating the obvious. But you're like, but we're all like cheery. We're like, yes, <laughs> <No>. millions <laughs> of people go viral, General Milley, for stating the freaking obvious. Like, that's how that's how desperate we are for some common sense from normal people in our politics. Yeah. And as for Matt Gates again, Again, sorry, sorry, this is all on the Democrats. Why is he sitting on any of these committees?
2: Yeah, why is he sitting on any of these committees? Democrats could kick him out.
4: Ilhan Omar is threatened with expulsion from committees for every tweet she sends, she gets threatened with expulsion from a committee. This guy is accused of one of the most serious crimes known to man. He denies it, to be clear, and yet he's sitting on a committee, he's sitting on the Judiciary Committee, getting to ask questions to the FBI director, <laughs> which is investigating him. If you saw this in Venezuela, you would say, wow, what a failed state that is, <laughs> that members of the governing or, you know, opposition party can quiz the head of the security forces. I mean, just That's bizarre.
2: investigating them. No, that is amazing. And it is, I don't quite understand why Democrats haven't taken more. I mean, they did Marjorie Taylor Greene, but all of the other people like Mo Brooks.
4: Yeah, what, Gosar? Paul Gosar's the one that should have been. I mean, Paul Gosar attended a white nationalist yes. conference attended by Holocaust right. deniers. He then <laughs> went right. online and tweeted out uh, <laughs> white nationalist memes, right. right? And then he referred to a dead insurrectionist as having been executed by the police. I mean, where at what point do you say Paul Gosar, I mean, his own family have disowned him, right? I his know. siblings, siblings go inter- so yes. I interviewed them on my show. His siblings have disowned him, but the Democratic Party won't strip him of any committee assignment.
2: No, and Mo Brooks is, you know, spoke at the Stop the Steal and is running, is going to be a senator. Mo Brooks is going to be a senator. I
4: mean, if you just look at some of these state races, you just want to tear your hair out. You have What's his name? The guy in Ohio, Josh Mandel, who is oh, the le- worst. Who is leading the pack in the Republican vacant <laughs> Ohio seat. This is the guy who said Ilhan Omar should be deported. I mean, literally five, 10 years ago, you would have lost your job in any walk of life. That would be KKK propaganda telling an American citizen that they should be deported, a black American citizen. Now it's like, sure, not, not a single Republican was asked to answer for it. Not a single Democrat went in front of a camera and made it into a story to go back to my point earlier about Fox and critical race theory, there is nothing on the left or liberal side that allows them to actually take advantage of the outrages, and I don't want to say the word gaffe, it's 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 an understatement, of what the Republicans offer on a daily basis.
2: Yeah, it is amazing to me. And I do think with Ilhan Omar, you see so much anti-Muslim sentiment and racism focused on her. And you definitely feel like there are still... Venues where it's not being called out at all. It's not being called out by our own colleagues. I mean, this is where, you know, I, I've said this before and I'll say it again.
4: If God forbid, one of the many nutcases who have threatened Ilhan Omar's life, one of them was prosecuted after being found with hundreds of bullets and weapons in his house, the number of people that she threatened with death by, if, God forbid, one of them were to succeed in killing her, I would say that the blood is not just on Republican Party's hands who incited this stuff, but the Democratic Party who never really have had her back and have always been immediately bullied into, pressured into, spun into, like, you must condemn Ilhan Omar. It's both sides. If we're going to condemn Steve King, you must condemn Ilhan Omar. And it's kind of like... even when she's misquoted, like recently, where she was literally talking about an international criminal court investigation into Afghanistan, America, the Taliban, Hamas, Israel. And she simply pointed out all of those should be it was immediately spun by the right-wing media. And then you had all the Democrats come out and say, yes, yes, she should apologize. You you know what the the group of Jewish Democrats who came out to condemn her for anti semitism you know what they said in their statement? They said that she was um, giving cover, potentially giving cover to, to terrorist groups. That is the yeah. definition of Islamophobia, to tell a Muslim that they are supporting terrorism when they're not. I mean, that is that is the equivalent to me telling a Jewish person that, you know, you like money. It's, it's a classic Islamophobia. I know we're, right. we're sadly in this country, we're very familiar, rightly so, with anti-Semitic tropes. We're not as familiar with Islamophobic tropes. When you keep telling a Muslim member of Congress who has never said anything, in defense of Hamas, that you are pro-Hamas or pro-terrorist, that is Islamophobia. And I would just love one time for Pelosi, Schumer, Biden to come out and say, you know what? We're fed up of all the racist attacks on the non-white members of our party.
2: Just one time, do it. Yeah, it is just completely shocking. But another thing that I'm curious to know, which I've actually been thinking a lot about because I wrote about Vice President Harris and the kind of criticism she gets. And I was thinking, can you think of a woman politician who is not ultimately kind of destroyed by the media? That's a
4: great question.
2: I've been thinking about this because I was thinking, well, you know, I was thinking about all the kind of attacks that the vice president gets and how they sort of don't, you know, Biden kind of escapes them.
4: Oh, hundred 100%. I mean, the reason Biden is president is... The irony is the left gets accused, liberals get accused of identity politics, but the irony is that the reason Donald Trump is president and the reason Joe Biden is president is heavily to do with identity politics, in different ways, of course. But, you know, Donald Trump was the greatest practitioner of white identity politics that we've seen in this country for decades. And Joe Biden, while he's not a practitioner of it, is definitely a beneficiary of it. We know for a fact that people said, okay, we like the comfortable, non-scary old white dude who looks like my grandpa rather than the scary Jewish Marxist or the woman who wants to put, you know the woman who wants to put taxes on everyone, you know, Warren, Sanders, Kamala Harris, it was easy to reject them in the primaries, whereas Joe Biden was like the familiar guy. And we all know that Barack Obama picked him as his vice president for that specific role to play the safe white older dude, uh, flanking the first black president. And, you know, that is the reality. And Joe Biden did the reverse, putting a black woman, a, a mixed race woman on his uh, ticket good for him for doing that, but you know, she got a lot of the, as you say, she got a lot of the attacks that
3: he didn't. I keep thinking of that uh, Dave Weigel report that all the conservative conferences, they can't sell anti Biden merch. Yes. Like, so that true. it just doesn't sell because it's like, why is that? Why can't they sell it? What is it about the old white
4: Christian dude that they can't? That they can't sell anything about it. Why is it that they're able to sell stuff about Hillary and Barack and Kamala?
2: Yeah, it's odd. But do you think this means that we're just never going to have a woman in the executive branch who gets elected on her own? I mean, I just can't see... I mean, I keep trying to look for a woman who can...
4: I don't know, to be honest. I would like to say yes, but the reality is, you know, do you remember when Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren had their fallout during the election? And uh, uh, and I like both of them. I thought Warren handled it badly because from my understanding of what Bernie said, and none of us were in that room, Bernie Sanders was pointing out what you're pointing at. He wasn't endorsing the view. He was pointing out that sadly there's enough people to... You know, cynically, either push the you know push this line that we can't have a woman president, or that believe it's not possible. And you know, those of us who say it's not possible, we're falling into the trap, right? It becomes a self fulfilling prophecy when we say, "Oh well, America will never vote for a woman president." Well, they won't if we keep saying stuff like that. Right. So the first point is, we need to say, put aside whatever doubts we have in our minds about our fellow citizens, and say, "I'll vote for a woman president." I don't see why everyone else won't or shouldn't. I mean, it's embarrassing, right? Most countries. Most of our peers Everywhere. have had women leaders, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, developing countries, Muslim-majority countries. For those in yeah. America who like to lecture Muslims on misogyny, <laughs> Bangladesh, <laughs> uh, Pakistan, right. I was about that. Indonesia yeah. have all had elected female heads of government or state. Um, you go to Europe, you know, Margaret Thatcher, 1979 in the UK, Theresa May since then. I mean, it's ridiculous that the you United know, States of America, which talks such a good game on rights, on freedom, on progress, on feminism... You know, Hillary Clinton had to run twice, uh, second time round, She was the most qualified person running for president in a generation and lost to the Carnival Barker ex-reality TV star man accused of multiple sexual assaults. You know, I don't think America will ever live down 2016.
2: Yeah, no, it's true.
3: So, Betty, you added this really great thing on the show last night, I believe it was, uh, that— about that all the conservatives will always say that this is a republic, not a democracy. Yes. Can you talk to us about that? <laughs> yes.
4: So if anyone spent any time arguing about any of these issues that we've put, talked about today, especially democracy, voting rights, the idea of an undemocratic Senate, the idea of an undemocratic electoral college, the filibuster, why does it support, you know, why do 60 people get to beat 50 the response you will invariably get from someone on the internet or from a member of the Senate like a Mike Lee or a a libertarian pal of his like Rand Paul is, we're a republic, not a democracy. In fact, Senator Mike Lee declared this on Twitter. He said, we are not a democracy. And there's this weird thing, they say it, not just as a kind of fact, but they say it as if it's a mic drop moment. It's like, ha ha ha, we have defeated you in this debate over political theory. Look at you, foolish you. Don't you know the founders were against democracy? And you can find lots of memes online from (laughs) Hamilton and co saying democracy is bad. And it's true. Right. Turning point USA. Yeah. And the founders did say democracy is bad, but they weren't talking about the democracy that we're talking about. They were very clearly, explicitly talking about the kind of ancient, direct Athenian democracy where people turn up in yogas at arenas (laughs) to kind of decide (laughs) governance together. Like the only place I can think of in the Western world that does that in any variation is Switzerland right? But nobody, no, everyone else is representative government. And what the founders wanted was representative democracy. That shouldn't sound so shocking. We all know the stories. We all know the checks and balances. And I just went through some of the quotes on my show last night from James Madison, from Alexander Hamilton, uh, talking about what is the sovereignty of a country, the way a government should be set up is through representative government based on the people's views. In fact, um, you know, Madison talked about a republic being about majority rule. This idea today that a minority is what they wanted, they wanted to protect They wanted to protect a minority, but not empower one. They didn't come up with the filibuster. It's an important point. So many politicians, including members of the Senate, including Democrats, sorry to say, and you know the two Democrats I'm thinking of, always imply that the filibuster is some ancient founding principle of this country. No, the founders wanted a majority-ruled Senate. Now, did they set up a system, which, you know, pushed back against majority rule that set all sorts of blocks and checks, like the Electoral College, like two senators, per say, yes, of course they did. And we could talk about that. But the idea that a majority should not govern because we're a republic, not a democracy, makes no sense. It's ridiculous. It's like saying, somebody said on Twitter to me, it's like saying, I'm a trout, I'm not a fish. Well, look, a <laughs> republic is a type of democracy, rep- representative government. So it fundamentally comes back to the idea that they simply do not want majority rule because they know they are the minority. Look at the voting. Look, A Republican last won the White House at the first attempt with a majority of the popular vote in 1988. Right, You have to go back to 1988. That is a long time ago. It's been 33 years since the Republican Party won the White House first time round. With a popular vote win. That tells you everything you need to know about the fact that they are a minority party. They are the party of a a dwindling, overly rural, uh, conservative white minority. It explains everything about our politics right now in terms of their backlash over race and the browning of America, and in terms of their defense of a fundamentally undemocratic system. The Senate, 50-50 Senate, a lot of people don't realize this, we have a 50-50 Senate, but the 50 Republicans in the Senate, they represent 43 million fewer Americans than the 50 Democrats in the Senate. That's an astonishing, that's not what the founders wanted. That is not how America was built. And we have to reform our system to reflect that. The idea, and you know, I quoted Lincoln at the end of my clip last night, you know, the greatest Republican president of all time, who says, You cannot have a permanent state of minority rule. That is unacceptable. And that is what we have right now across the country from state to federal level. It is minority rule all the way down in terms of the Republican Party's control of our governance.
2: And there's no way to fix it because Democrats are never going to do anything
4: so that's a two-part statement by you there is a way to fix it but as you say that requires the democrats to get off their backsides and take it seriously the problem is that as i said at the start of our conversation these guys talk a good game on democracy i mean joe biden you can find some great rousing lines about defending democracy and jim crow on steroids but has he come out strongly for dc statehood i haven't heard it. i know he does support it but he hasn't come out vocally for it does he support getting rid of the filibuster no does he support getting rid of the electoral college of course not how about supreme court reform he gave it to a committee, a commission and kick the can down the road. Can you imagine if the Republicans were in this position right now? The Republicans had just won the House, the Senate, the White House, and they looked around and saw that they were in trouble what you think they wouldn't pass DC statehood, get rid of the filibuster, mm-hmm. add justices to the Supreme Court in a flash?
2: There'd be seventy-six justices on the Supreme Court in a minute.
4: And DC Puerto Rico, if they were Republican majority state, would be they would have been states back on January twenty-second. Yes, exactly.
2: I mean, that is the thing that just gets me oh. so agitated. Is it that Mitch McConnell is better at his job than chuck schumer or is it this terrible thing that democrats feel that because they're the good guys they will win
4: so if better at your job you define as ruthlessly acquiring and exercising yes. power which is yes, what
2: i do then yes.
4: yes he is definitely better at a job than anybody not just chuck schumer but look it is just what democrats do sadly and let me apologize here not all democrats let's be clear there are different types of them. elizabeth warren takes this stuff seriously she's been going on about it for a while but you know does kirsten cinnamon no does john tester no does you know does Mark Warner know? Look at the Democrats who are huddled outside the White House today. Look at that image, Molly. They're just smiling. They're so happy to be standing near Republicans. They they almost want to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. It is the greatest <laughs> moment. They don't give a sh- They don't give a crap what's in that bill. Let's be honest. They care about the process. For a lot of Democrats, it is the process, not the outcome. Whether it's five hundred and fifty-nine billion of new money, or four hundred and twenty billion, or seven hundred and seventeen billion, as long as they can stand next to their friends. Lisa and Susan and Mitt and say, hey, the Senate works, as Mitt Romney ridiculously claimed. Then, yet, yeah, unfortunately, that group of Democrats, yeah, they'll be they'll be singing bipartisan shift <laughs> as the Republican <laughs> overturns as the Republicans overturn the next 17 elections.
2: Yeah. Oh, I'm so depressed.
4: Sorry for depressing you, but we need to get <laughs> we need to get depressed and then get angry and That's do stuff right. about it. Hell yeah. Yeah.
2: Thank you for joining us. Please come back soon.
3: Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Every week, The New Abnormal has a bonus episode, and this week, we're so excited to have historian Kevin Cruz talk to us about critical race theory and what's really going on from a historical lens. To hear this along with all of our past bonus episodes, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com.
4: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
3: Jeff Stein is the White House economics reporter for The Washington Post.
2: Welcome to The New Abnormal, Jeff Stein.
0: It's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: We're excited to have you. I'm like a big fan of yours. I read you all the time. And what I feel like you hit the sweet spot of being very focused on, on the economy in a really thoughtful way. So I'm curious to know, there's like a lot of... Economic stuff going on behind the scenes, right? And so I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about this bipartisan, theoretically bipartisan infrastructure bill that looks like it might actually pass.
0: Yeah, it's the uh, it's the thing of the hour right now. You know, the, the thing in Washington is, you know, there's always this back and forth with these kinds of negotiations. Can't say that I've covered that many, but a lot of people, when they first start following this, they see this two sides incredibly far apart and then keep on saying things, you know, we disagree about this, we disagree about that. And it creates this impression, I think, for, you know, people who are just tuning in that it's not, it's not serious, that there's no real potential deal. And I think, you know, really to my credit, which is the most important thing we should focus on in this podcast. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I've been trying to tell people that this is a real thing and, that the assurances um, that uh, a lot of the people on the left, Hill staffers on the left, thought they were getting from the White House about this deal appear to not have been the case and, and that I think a lot of people underestimated how serious the White House was getting a bipartisan infrastructure deal. I think it's worth remembering that for a lot of political strategists, Trump's failure in his early presidency to cement a bipartisan infrastructure deal that Democrats were eager to give him was viewed as a tremendous act of political malpractice um, and that there's tremendous political incentive to do this. And so to me, it's not been surprising that the White House has really been willing to jettison huge and key parts of its um. Domestic policy agenda to get this deal. Of course, the White House and senior Democrats would say that a lot of the important stuff that they are leaving out of this deal will come in the second package that they'll try to pass with only Democratic votes. Right now, the White House and senior Democrats are trying to do this sort of difficult act where they're trying to say and give assurances that this second bipartisan, the second partisan reconciliation bill will include critical, critical policy measures that are going to fall out of the bipartisan deal. The biggest among them include measures to combat climate change, which is a pretty important issue, and um, social spending programs, child care, paid family medical leave, universal pre-K, and taxing the rich. I think those are maybe the three biggest buckets that are um, almost certainly, not, not almost certainly, that are not going to be in a deal with Republicans. And so the senior Democrats are trying to assure their left flank that if you guys give us this bipartisan deal, don't make too much of a stink. We will get that other deal. Just wait your turn. And I think there's a lot of trepidation about that. Although um, some people I talked to today um, are confident that Senator Manchin will be there on maybe not the full suite of things, maybe not the $6 trillion that Bernie Sanders initially envisioned, but really important parts of it, maybe even expanding Medicare, maybe even, um, a clean energy standard, or other really important climate measures. And and Manchin has said publicly that he thinks the 2017 Republican tax law was unfair and that he wants to revisit and repeal parts of it. So um, maybe I'm being too cynical when I say, you know, the, the White House assuring people that there is a second deal with a lot of their priorities in the offing is, is maybe a dangerous gamble for Democrats to take.
2: Right. But there are other choices just to get nothing.
0: There are other choices to get nothing right now, but there's a thought, and maybe it's not accurate, but that, you know, what the centrist Democrats and what a lot of the business lobby, which drives so much of what happens in Washington, they are really adamant on a lot of this new infrastructure spending. There's a lot of political muscle behind it, and if you allow sort of the momentum behind the infrastructure package to be sucked out through these bipartisan negotiations, you make it maybe harder to build that momentum when you're trying to do the partisan package. That's, I guess, the, the cynical counter
2: It's so interesting because it is it really hits to a, like, Twitter is not real life, which is every pundit. I mean, there's like a whole school of punditry, which is like Twitter is not real life. I happen to think Twitter is real life, but... I am much more to the left of a lot of this. And I think, you know, some of the centrism is just like switching, you know, seats on the Titanic. But um, there certainly is this like broad appeal in the rest of the country for bipartisanship still, which is so bizarre to me, considering what Republicans have done for the last five years.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think on on the like DC versus real world implications question. I think this is one of the reasons I'm trying to be very focused on, you know, what exactly does this bipartisan deal do about climate change? And Democrats famously squandered their majorities in the Obama administration. They had legislation that was written and had the support of most of the caucus, um, the Waxman-Markey bill that would have done a ton and really made the current battle against climate change a lot easier and the idea that we're going to head into the 2022 midterms without serious climate action is uh i think for a lot of climate experts a very frightening one given yeah. what we're facing in terms of ecological disaster humanitarian catastrophe and you know even with Everything that the White House proposed, right. passing tomorrow, a lot of the climate experts say that's still not enough to avoid these horrible consequences that we're already seeing playing in out California. in California. I mean,
2: California, they're, they're, yeah. they have no water, and they are having, you know, it's the beginning of fire season, which is something that just started in the last five years that we are now completely normalized. So, no, yeah. I... I mean, I feel like the fundamental problem is just continually like we're headed towards this climate disaster. And then we have, you know, a bipartisan world, which doesn't even see it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think the White House response would be that they're pushing as hard as they can. They're going to get I mean, the, the really optimistic view on this, which I'm a little skeptical of, frankly, is that this is some of the spin I've been hearing today and yesterday, which is that. If the White House gets a trillion dollar infrastructure plan that includes a lot of what they wanted to pass anyway in a partisan reconciliation package that allows them to dramatically lower the amount of spending that they need to propose for the next plan. So insofar as moderates are concerned about the sticker shock of another big package, they can say, oh, look, we don't have to do all that spending because we got the bipartisan cover for it. I'm a little skeptical because you're already hearing people saying, look, we just passed a $2 trillion economic stimulus relief package. That seems to be fueling concerns, not sort of sublimating them. So, I I mean, I I think it's going to be quite a fight. And what we're really, I mean, I I think this bipartisan deal is going to pass. They still have details to work out. There's still very important questions, but the momentum is there. Both sides want to do this. And I think quite tellingly, um, this, I think was published, Politico had a good story sort of laying this out, which it adhered with my reporting, which is basically that Mitch McConnell and senior Republicans are interested in an infrastructure package. Um, you know, it's not clear how they'll vote, but they've allowed their caucus to engage and push this forward, not just because it it might help run out the clock, you know, in the amount of time the White House has to pass bills, but also because they think that the centrists, in their mind, will be less interested in doing this partisan bill once they get the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Senator Manchin came out yesterday and was talking about how he's on board with all these different things in the reconciliation package, but he is trying to signal to Republicans that they have to be serious about the bipartisan deal, or he's comfortable going that route. Maybe that's just kind of a bit of posturing on, on his part, um, although, you know, I'm like everyone else trying to figure out exactly uh, <laughs> what he thinks and what's in his head.
2: yeah. I wrote about cinema earlier in the week, and it feels like Manchin, at least, there is no— there will be no other Democratic senator from West Virginia besides Joe Manchin for the next 20 years, right? Like, you don't primary that—like, you just, you know, primarying that guy is giving the seat to a Republican. So he is pretty, like, stable in his place in the Democratic Party, though I wonder about cinema, especially when you have— mark kelly up for re-election in a year
0: i think there's like a a tremendous amount of frustration from the white house which i'm actually somewhat sympathetic towards about you know they they think that you know they see all these pieces sort of on like the liberal twitter sphere that you were alluding to about you know why don't they just bully mansion why don't they just sort of like i don't know like (laughs) run more ads in west virginia attacking him and
2: and you can't do that
0: and, you know, they they had Kamala Harris. I mean, I don't know who was responsible for it, but Kamala Harris went down there and yeah. Manchin freaked out. And yeah. uh, it certainly did not seem to be an effective, smart strategy. And I think it's very easy for people who are, are not in the White House's position to say, you know, why don't you just try to strip funding for West Virginia? I mean, there's a real possibility that Manchin could go independent or switch parties or, you know, just say I'm not cooperating with anything. I think, it, you know, Manchin voted against um, the Republican tax law. You know, he voted um, for the stimulus plan. Obviously, he shrunk it a little bit, but it was quite, you know, quite a big bill, and and he gave it his, his blessing. And I think when I talk to people sort of on the left, like the Justice Democrats types, where they focused and had quite an impact is by, and I think this is in line with your point, you know, People who are in very blue states who vote like mansion is like the big (laughs) question mark, you know, Uh, like the Delaware senators are from like extremely safe seats, but vote very, very centrist and almost like Republicans in a lot of ways. Um, That seems like the lower hanging fruit for the left.
2: Yeah. You know, there's a lot of good energy there, especially when it comes to some of these people who, you know, it's not the Supreme Court. You shouldn't be able to be there forever.
0: Well, one of the Justice Dems has a, a tweet I sent printed out at his desk because <laughs> I had no recollection of sending this tweet, which is always a, a great sign. Yeah. <laughs> there were all these groups after 2016 that were kind of like popping up and being like, we're going to like transform politics. Like, you know, like exciting thing. Like people got excited by Bernie. And I tweeted something like, to be honest, like I didn't think justice Democrats were going to survive more than like a few weeks. And I guess they have that tweet, like from like Washington Post, shill Jeff Stein on the desk somewhere as motivation. He, he never thought we'd make it. <laughs> I,
2: it's funny. Cause I think a few was I mean, not obviously, you're not partisan, but I do think of you as more open to sort of a modern, modern monetary theory kind of thing than some others who write in economics. Yeah,
0: you should tell the MMT folks that in my inbox. Um, <laughs> I like have not been able to find a neutral, like descriptive, like non-supportive but also like non-pejorative way to describe MMT that like MMTers will not get mad at me about. <laughs> <laughs> I try to, like, each time I try to encapsulate it and put it in a sentence that is possible by the Washington Post standards, like, I, it gets more and more vague, you know, <laughs> like the way I describe it. Like, please don't get mad at me.
2: I just need to, to, to explain this for the listeners who are not us. MMT is modern monetary theory, which is a very kind of exciting to people on the left theory, which is basically you can print as much money as you want and it doesn't matter.
0: See, yeah, see, that that phrase, like, is totally... <laughs> I
2: know, they get mad.
0: They will hate that.
2: You know, but it doesn't matter because I'm a partisan.
0: But, like, I also can't be, like, in, like, a story that is not about them, like, in a passing <laughs> reference, be, like, they have a different, like, theory of how, like, sovereign cu- currency works. And, like, <laughs> it's, like, you know, like, I don't, I don't have space for, like, 13 chapters on Minsky, like, in the... With like a brief clause to describe them. So I apologize to the MMT folks, that I have not been able to figure out exactly how to describe them.
2: I'm kind of obsessed with it because it's like MMT is now, like Paul Krugman is now MMT. So like, you know. Is he? Well, he isn't. He isn't. I got him to get very into it, but I don't. I don't know that ultimately he—that's a theory he gets behind. But I think he's somewhat open to it. I should come
0: back, and we should do a whole separate MMT episode,
2: <laughs> just on MMT and Paul Krugman,
0: just to make people as angry as possible.
2: Um, but I do think it is, you know, we do find ourselves in this interesting time. And the thing I wanted to just get back to Twitter is not real life for a minute. There definitely is a large branch of punditry that is always trying to like get the, you know, trying to pull that from the news. So, for example, I, we have this insane mayor's race in New York where we have just elected a cop who lives in New Jersey and or not quite yet, but it's coming and. <laughs> uh-huh. um, <laughs> And he maybe doesn't live in New Jersey, but he may live in New Jersey. You know, there's a lot of, like, information gleaned from this that this was Twitter is not real life. But I actually think this was actually a sort of a case against some of the stuff that's in that Senate Bill 1 that didn't pass.
0: Hmm. Can you elaborate on
2: Yeah. I want you to tell me if I'm insane here. This is (laughs) like—
0: Well, again, I need to know more about—
2: In SB 1, which didn't pass— which was really this house bill, you mean the, rights one? the the voting rights. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of stuff in there that w- that we actually have in New York City: federalized elections, ma- uh, a lot of match, you know, five to one matching, and some of this stuff is really, I think, why we ended up with this com- this totally wacky mayor. Which is right because when you have this five to one matching, nobody ever drops out. So. We had a full slate of candidates. We had two really impressive women. Neither dropped out. We had, like, three or four other progressives. And it all split the vote.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert in the New York City political scene. But I I, I do think, like, whether— I mean, obviously, extrapolating meanings from elections is so— I don't know. It just seems so meaningless, like— elections are so complicated, like the personalities can drive so much. Trump had such idiosyncratic beliefs and saying that one part of those beliefs was, you know, it can lead to such misleading punditry, you know, like, I don't know, Biden changed his, you know, the child tax credit proposal from where Clinton was. Biden won, Hillary didn't. Is that because he changed the refundability of the CTC in his campaign document on page 43, like I think it's very hard to figure out how to infer longer term meanings from politics, which is maybe a, a dodge. I will say though, I do think it's like not a great sign that the left, which is, you know, this is their backyard. Like this is, if the left can't control New York city politics, like, where is it? Like I'm in Buffalo, I guess, but like, where, you know, <laughs> where, where is the New York city core i mean it's it's like you know if if the tea party had lost in 2011 and you know in you know in the deep red texas i I mean it's not an exact comparison but
2: but it's it's, yeah there's certainly something
0: it's like an organizational question like did they not find the right candidate did they not but i think yeah i mean i think it's pretty clear that adams did very well in the outer boroughs and you know garcia did well in manhattan i guess but But when you look at the outer boroughs, like those are obviously the less affluent ones. And a guy who a lot of people on Twitter would tell you is at odds with, you know, the black and brown parts of the city actually did quite well there. And what that means for the left, I mean, it doesn't mean that all the things we've seen in American politics, you know, building towards progressive movements is necessarily invalid. But I do think it's not an encouraging sign at a minimum.
2: In my mind, do you think this bipartisan infrastructure bill is... Biden's push towards the midterms?
0: I think they're very excited to talk about it. You know, there's a lot that will get done, you know, as not, you know, there are tremendous problems in this country. Like, you know, there was that terrible story the other day about the bridge collapse and the uh, impact on productivity uh, is huge. And we'll have to see what the details are. But there will be some money for climate change, I think, in particular to um, improve the nation's electrical grid. Um, I believe there will be some money for uh, EV charging stations. That could be a really big deal to make those more accessible and to help with a transition away from dirty cars. And I think it's not crazy to, for the Biden administration to think that there will be tangible material benefits that will be delivered from this. I think it's also worth wondering. I mean, I, I reported this morning that they're planning on reappropriating some of the unemployment benefits that. Um, are not being spent from the relief package for to pay for the infrastructure plan? Are there are a lot of people in unemployment who are seeing their benefits stripped away, who will, even if it's technically the fault of the Republican governor, will those people be mad at Biden or Democrats and sit out the next election, even if they right. see the roads getting fixed? Like, I think that's a totally fair question. Um, right
2: impossible to know, though. But again, if Democrats messaged better, who knows, right? I mean, Democrats need to say, like, these are the Republican governors taking away your unemployment benefits because they think it'll make you work. I mean, it's like one of the sort of cruelest things I've ever read. But I have one last question for you. As someone who, like, thinks a lot about what happened during Obama, it strikes me, and I'm curious to know if you think I'm crazy that. Biden is good at working Congress and the Senate, or at least if this passes, he will go down as that in a way that Obama wasn't.
0: I think that's really true. And I think that's something the White House is clearly proud of. And, you know, I think they really feel proud of the infrastructure deal and they feel proud of the stimulus. And I think the the skeptic would say, like, Washington is so inherently corrupt and so broken that being able to work within it is um, maybe a good thing, but maybe also a sign of sort of a dangerous willing to compromise and raises questions about efficacy. And, you know, like if, if, the, you know, the pragmatic side of, of, Biden has gotten him in trouble in the past, you know, his, his centrism has led to a lot of votes that I think a lot of people have said has have had tremendous negative consequences right. from the, the Iraq war bill. to, you know, the, I mean, the list goes on and the bankruptcy bill and like working within Washington is not always a good thing. Um, I think they would say that it certainly is on this for their priorities now, but we'll have to see what's in the package and be um, diligent about tracking its real world impact and not just saying a bipartisan deal is good on its own terms.
2: Right. Yeah, that's so true. Well, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back soon.
0: Yeah, I'm excited for our MMT.
2: Yeah, <laughs> we'll do an entire hour, a special hour on modern <laughs> monetary theory. It's what
0: the people want.
3: What's crazier than QAnon, more outlandish than Pizzagate, and scarier than a Mexican getaway with Ted Cruz? The answer is what the American right wing has planned next. Be one of the first to listen to Fever Dreams, the new podcast from The Daily Beast tracking the conspiracy slingers, orange acolytes, and straight-up grifters pushing to retake power. Every Wednesday, hosts Swin Subisang and Will Summer checking in on the movement of the radical right. Head to thedailybeast.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast player to catch the first episode and get subscribed. That's Fever Dreams, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Jesse Cannon.
3: Molly Jung Fast. What's going on?
2: It's time to talk about people who suck.
3: That's the time. I see it on my watch.
2: That's the time. You know.
3: You have an Apple Watch. Could you program that so that we do this segment first? Okay, okay. Are
2: you kidding me? I can barely write my own name. (laughs) Like, I'm just trying to stay out of jail, man. But today is a big day because... Today is the day that I get to have Ron DeSantis as my fuck that guy. And I've had him before. I do see his constant stream of fuckery. But today I get to have him because of his amazing legislation, which is almost completely crafted for him to get on Fox News. (laughs) He has seen critical race theory. He is very excited because he thinks that critical race theory will lead him to re-election and eventually the presidency. And so he has legislated his state that has ranked 37th in COVID recovery. That's out of 50 for those playing at home. (laughs) That asshole made a new legislation which says that if colleges are involved in indoctrination, whatever that means, that they will have funding withheld. So this is in the hopes that Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson, Swanson, Frozen Fish Air, will have him on the air and congratulate him for his ability to stop the moral panic and keep Kids in Florida just as dumb and uneducated as the Republican Party needs them to be. And so, for this bill, which encourages patriotic education, I say Ron DeSantis knowledge is not your worst enemy
3: yeah reality unfortunately is his worst enemy uh, enemy. he really has been at (laughs) war with it you gotta come you gotta come in a man who sticks yes yes that's, that's actually true he's he's looking a little orange
2: i mean you just there's only so much sun you can take before you start to age
3: this is why i keep the hat on and stay inside
2: yes exactly so who is your fuck that guy jesse cannon
3: you know it's almost comical when your name is pearson sharp and you look like you he does and you say really fascist things it's like dude come on playing the part a little hard pearson is of course a oan cable host and yesterday he went on a rant about how he might have to execute tens of thousands of people for stealing the election from his man donald trump that he loves so much
2: oan those who can't i
3: will tell you like While we joke about this, like it really I don't know if it's like what I've been reading lately, but I just keep connecting the dots that these people scaring the shit out of everyday people is what's driving the Republican Party to go so crazy and hearing this fascist looking freak get so riled up and try to rile people up and just say totally demented things that you know are going to go on to make people do totally demented things it really is just so depressing
2: yeah no they're hoping for violence
3: they are hoping for violence
2: and it seems like an inevitability and it's really quite scary
3: on that note we'll wrap this episode of the new abnormal from the daily beast In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from the Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode.